We love things that work, don't we? When I was growing up in Sharon definitely loves things that work. When I was growing up as a teenager in the early 2000s, there was a debate raging, Mac versus PC, um, with the, you might remember the terrible adverts if you're not too, uh, not too young to remember it. And the Mac logo at the time was, it just works. And it kind of just keys into, if you like, our, regardless of your opinions on Mac or PC, it keys into us as a culture. We just, the best thing is the thing that works for you, that we're perhaps a little bit less focused on what is true or what is ultimately good, but we're more interested in what is going to help me in my everyday life. What is going to, I don't know, improve my morning routine so that it's just a bit more efficient, a bit more effective, a bit less friction, or what is going to make my average day just a little bit better? And it's natural that then, because that's pervasive in our culture, we may start applying that to our faith and start to think questions like, does following Jesus actually work? Does it help me? Is it good for me? Is it good for the things that I value? And as Paul finishes this letter to the Philippians, we get to see, once again, just how good the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. Because not only is it true, not only is the gospel of Jesus Christ right, but in two areas that I think many of us would value highly, it works. These two areas being uh, the area of finding a sense of inner contentment and of having relationships that flourish. And so today's message is contentment and community, and we're going to be reading from verse uh, Verse 10 of chapter 4 of Philippians. If you've got a Bible, do turn there. If you can, it's always good to be able to track along. Um, But if not, the words will appear on the screen and you can read along there. So verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This right here is a fitting end to a letter that has been filled with joy. 
Paul ends this letter by celebrating and rejoicing. The rejoicing frames, we see the beginning and the end of this passage. He begins in verse 10 by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And then in verse 20, we just heard it. He just sort of breaks out in spontaneous worship in all that he's been saying. To our God, verse 20, and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what Paul is celebrating is the Philippian church. What has become apparent as we read through is that they have given him a significant gift. Verse 10, we read, I have uh, I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you have now revived your concern for me. And what he's basically saying is I'm very happy that you have been able to give me a gift once again. And yet while Paul is grateful for this gift, sat in prison, finally he can eat again, which is very happy for that. While he's really grateful for the gift, what has got Paul rejoicing It's not so much the gift that he has received, not the money that's come in or the the Subway sandwiches that he can now have or whatever it is, but how this gift is revealing some greater spiritual realities that are at work. Spiritual realities at work in Paul's own life, and he's seeing signs that the same things are happening in the life of the Philippian church. And we'll look at those in turn and then finish by looking at how these spiritual realities that are going on have also shaped the relationship between Paul and this church. So as Paul then goes on after saying, I'm grateful and I rejoice that you've sent this gift, he then says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I don't recommend this as a template necessarily for writing thank you notes to your nan after Christmas because what it could sound like is thanks very much for the gift I don't need it which isn't the best way of saying thank you always but as we said this is the context of rejoicing Paul is exceptionally happy for what he has received he is delighted in this gift but what he's saying is I have discovered something and I wonder we don't know but I wonder if Maybe this gift that he has received from the Philippian church just led to being almost like the final bit of the penny dropping for him in his understanding and his revelation of what is going on. That this something, this something deep and profound that he wants to invite this Philippian church into and to share with them is that in receiving this gift, he's realized, I actually don't have any need. I am content as I am. I have learned in whatever situation I face, I can be content. Now, this has happened a few times in this letter already, that when Paul starts to share quite openly and intimately with the Philippian church, this church that he loves, when he starts to share about what life in God can look like and this inner world that Paul has, this this, what it looks like when you have a whole life devoted to following Jesus and over time with the, the fruits of that. He displays it on the page to the Philippian church and we look at it and certainly from my perspective, you can make up your own mind, but I look at it and just think, that is exactly what I am looking for. That is the longing of my heart. We've seen it through even just the lightness and then the, the enthusiastic tone that Paul has throughout the whole letter. And then when he speaks repeatedly of the joy 
the happiness that he has been able to experience despite living in the most difficult circumstances, been chained up in a prison cell. His fearlessness in the face of death. Do you remember back in chapter 1 where he says just to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then just last week we were looking at this peace that Paul has known that he can have. This peace that is available despite any circumstance, the uncertainty that Paul is living in right now of not knowing, am I ever going to be free again? Is tomorrow going to be my last day? Is the next day going to be my last day? And now, he says, contentment is his. This inner sense of complete satisfaction. Just this feeling, that feeling you have when you say, I know that I lack nothing. I know that I am completely full. I have more than enough. No matter what is going on around me. And throughout this letter, this repeated invitation that Paul just keeps throwing out of be like me and imitate me and a verse that we didn't quite get to last week, but learn from me, receive from me, hear from me, what you've seen in me, practice these things. Paul's constantly saying, you can have this too. You can know these too. These interior riches that Paul is displaying before the church. It's not to show off, look what I've got. But it's like, this is what you can have too. And I think for all of us, we would say this inner contentment is something that we long for, right? Yeah? I'm getting a few nods, it's good. But I think, to some extent, we have given up searching for it. That I think we have started to settle for less than genuine contentment. That it seems too hard a goal. And so instead, we just settle for perhaps the dopamine hit of I'm going to spend a bit of extra time framing my photo so I'll get a few extra likes on my Instagram. Or we'll settle for, instead, just a bit of numbing of our mind by spending five minutes, or let's face it, about two hours, on TikTok. And just think, that's entertainment, that's enough for me. Or perhaps the escapism that comes from just binging a whole series of whatever it is on Netflix long into the night. And settle for that instead of contentment. As C.S. Lewis once said, we have a tendency to be far too easily pleased. And maybe if we were to update it for the 21st century, far too easily distracted from contentment. But I think Paul would say to us through this passage, don't settle. Don't settle for less. This can be yours. That through these few verses, he almost, I think, goes over the top by using pairs of extremes and this all-encompassing language to say this really can be for you. What at any time, any person, any circumstance you're facing, this can be yours. You see it in verse 11. He says, whatever situation, we can find contentment. In verse 12, he says, in any and every circumstance, we can know contentment. If that's on its own, he's laying it on a little bit thick. But then he goes on with these pairs of saying, I have known how it is to be brought low. I've known how it is to abound. I've known what it's like to face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. He's just setting out these extremes and saying, either end of the extreme or any space in between, we can find this contentment. Trying to make sure they get the point. Our contentment does not have to be related to the circumstances that 
we find ourselves in. This contentment is not dependent at all on the money that we may have or not in our bank account. It doesn't have any bearing on whether your career trajectory is panning out quite how you dreamed it would a few years ago or not. It doesn't have any bearing at all on any of the exam results that are now coming in from your exams last month. This contentment can be yours. Any situation, it is available for everyone. Completely detached from any situation or circumstance we might find ourselves in. And I think we see this most apparently in verse 12, where Paul says, you might, it might not have scanned with us when you first read it, but he says, I know how to, uh, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. The secret of facing plenty. Now, this is a sentence that just does not make sense to us, does not scan in our ears at all. You think, why, do I, why would I need to find a secret of, a, of, of knowing contentment when I know plenty? But I think all of us believe to at least some degree that if I had plenty, my life was abounding. If I had everything that I needed, I had the richest food available to me, I had the biggest house, I could live where I want, drive whatever car I want, of course I'd be content. I wouldn't have to learn how to be content in those situations. It just comes naturally, right? That maybe subconsciously, I think all of us live in this narrative of if only I was to get this, or if only I was able to go here or experience that, then my life would be complete, right? And so we do. We get that, or we experience that, or we go over here, and our life feels complete for about five minutes. And then all of a sudden, it's the next thing. Oh, if only I had that, or if only I could experience this, or only I could go here, then I'm sure my life would definitely feel complete this time. Yeah? Is it just me? It's exhausting, isn't it? And totally unfulfilling. That we never quite get what it is that we think is right in front of us. And Paul here is saying this is never going to deliver. It really will not. Going after that next thing will never satisfy in the way that it promises. He's just saying to us so graciously and so kindly. I think if he was stood here, just look at us, look at us and just say, you know, you can get off the treadmill. <laughs> You don't have to keep running. That's not where you're going to find it. This man who is at, right at the end of his long, varied life where he's met all kinds of people, he's experienced all kinds of, clearly he's experienced lots of riches at, at certain points, all kinds of supernatural experiences and phenomena that we've been able to read about. And he's saying the secret I have learned through it all is you will only find this contentment that you long for in one place. One place, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, the identity of the him might be a mystery to us, were it not for the whole of the rest of the letter of Philippians, where he has been at pains to point out and leading us to the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying you will only find this contentment in Christ Jesus. 
as this letter comes to an end, it is impossible for us to avoid and miss out on it once again the absolute Christ-centeredness of Paul. He just cannot help talking about Jesus and how good life is with him. Paul was a man who bowed down before Jesus. He was a man who found his whole life and whole identity in Jesus. And now here we read, he lived his whole life through Jesus. It's the language of deepest unity and companionship that Paul is using here about his relationship with Jesus. So you only find it through him. Or your translation in verse 13, it might have said, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. That our heart's contentment is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I think often our expectations of contentment in the Christian life can sometimes go down the lines of, we think we're in this relationship with a God who is good and loving and cares about us. And so he is going to then arrange things in our life that are advantageous to us. That he is then going to open the right doors for us. He's going to open, thing, open the doors to exciting opportunities. He'll set us on a fulfilling career path that is in total alignment with the gifts that he's given us. And he'll give us financial and material blessings. And he'll find the perfect spouse for us. And generally, life will be good and it will be happy for us. Now, does God like to bless us with all of those things? Of course he does. He is good. He's abundant. He pours out his love in all kinds of different ways. But what Paul wants us to see here is that the ultimate contentment that we are looking for is not found in the things that God might give to us or the things that he might arrange for us in this world. We can celebrate them and rejoice in them when they come. But he is saying this contentment is only found in him in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our treasure. He is our prize. He is our pearl of great price, our all in all, our total sufficiency. This secret that he's discovered is that it is only through drawing near to this one of surpassing worth, coming to him, living, finding ourselves in Christ and living all of our lives through Christ only then will our souls be content. Which means that as we cultivate depth of relationship with Jesus, we are also cultivating for ourselves inner contentment. So just five minutes on your walk to university, taking out your headphones, I know, taking out your headphones, and praying. You are drawing close to him and you're cultivating contentment in your life. Worshipping while you're washing up or taking on the Bible in a year plan. All of these things, we are taking ourselves closer to Christ. We're deepening our relationship with him and we're maturing in contentment. And also we start walking in his strength. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That as we live in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, we walk in his resurrection power. Or as the commentator Alex Matia says, we are strengthened by the one who endues me with dynamite. Which is intense, but I quite like it. 
Uh, Paul just sort of chucks this in, this idea of strengthening in Christ. He doesn't then elaborate it. We don't really know precisely what he's talking about. But what we can see is it's just another facet, another thing that our good Savior who loves us and wants to pour into our lives and wants our lives to go well, that if we draw near to him, we'll know a power, a strength, a dynamite in Christ that we just cannot find anywhere else. This is the one message, the one thing that Paul wants the Philippian church to hear and to be left with. Jesus Christ is all sufficient in all seasons. He is all you ever need. Whatever you're facing, draw near to him. Your needs will be found in him. And what Paul is then delighting here is that he's not just found this for himself, but he is starting to spot signs that this is exactly what the Philippian church are starting to see themselves, that they are believing Christ is all-sufficient and that they're growing through it in a way that is actually, again, remarkably practical. As Paul continues in verses 15 and 16, he cannot help but just big up the Philippian church and how generous they have been over the years. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They're an unbelievably generous church. That when he was in Thessalonica, they just gave time and time and time again. When he left Macedonia, they were the only church that gave to him which means that they weren't in that sort of awkward arrangement where it's like everyone else is giving. It would be really, really awkward if I didn't give, so I kind of better give. There's no precedent for it. But they were just moved, stirred in their spirit. Oh, we want to give. It's remarkable in and of itself. Even more remarkable when you know the situation that they're in. This is a poor church. We know they were made up of slaves and many others that were right on the bottom rung of the economic ladder. We know that then in becoming Christians, their lives got even harder. They lost jobs. They were rejected from trade guilds, which I know you're all thinking, that would be awful. I would not like to be put out of a trade guild. But it just meant that they couldn't make money. They couldn't do all that they need to get food and, and, and provide for their family. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read about this exact church, and Paul uses the words, this church is in extreme poverty. They were poor, yet they gave. And they not only gave, but again, that same chapter in 2 Corinthians, they gave abundantly, their joy overflowed into a wealth of generosity. You read about it and you think, what a church. Their joy in giving overflowed into a wealth of generosity. And because they're in poverty, we know that the gift that they actually gave to Paul probably wasn't very big. Probably didn't actually materially help him all that much. But Paul is rejoicing because he's got his eyes on something else that is going on. Again, verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that is increasing to your credit. And here we have something that all of us were hoping would come up when we came to church this morning, accountancy language. Paul here, this word fruit actually could be translated profit. And the, the credit at the end of it is, is kind of credit in your account, if you like. Profit in your account. 
what Paul is saying here is that there is a, a profit is increasing in your account. I'm losing you all with the accountancy language. Come back, come back. <laughs> it's worth it. You've got something in your account, and as you are abundantly, generously giving, that something, it's not going down, it's increasing, it's growing. He's saying, as you give, you are getting richer and richer and richer and richer. You might think, what does this, what does this mean? Does this mean that have we give our money away? Like, we're just going to get more money back into our bank account? If so, how do I give, Duncan? Well, as we continue in verse 19, still Paul is talking about generosity and, and the, what they have given and the consequences of their gift. In verse 19, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours. Now, if, if he was just talking about material needs, I reckon the verse would stop there. It doesn't stop there. He says, my God will supply every one of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying this promise is as you give, you are getting richer and richer and richer, and God is supplying every one of your needs. And where is that happening? It's all happening, end of verse 19, in Christ Jesus. That through their generosity, this Philippian church are experiencing some of the depth of fellowship that Paul is talking about for himself. And they are starting to see the riches that Paul is experiencing at work in their own life. I think this passage here is kind of opening up some of the, if you like, spiritual mechanics that are going on when we give our money, when we are generous. In the previous verse, in verse 18, he's saying, when we give, it is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. He's saying, when we give, we are genuinely worshipping God. It is our worship to him. He sees our giving when we do it. He sees it, and he sees that it is sacrificial. He sees our gift, and he says, I know what you could do with that. I know that that gift is a takeaway, maybe even two takeaways. I know it's costly. And I know that you are choosing to give that to me. And as he sees that sacrifice, he delights. He says it is pleasing. And it is fragrant. He says this smells good to me. This is a good thing. It delights God and it draws us closer to him. That as we give, we know a deepening, a deeper level of what it means for God to supply our every need in Christ Jesus. Quite simply, as we give, we experience and move into a deepening of our fellowship with him. And last week, when we looked at peace, we saw that this promise of peace, this deep spiritual 
longing that we have, Paul actually says you can get hold of it through something pretty practical. You pray, you worship, you can know this peace that guards your heart and your mind. Well, along similar lines here, here is something really practical. It's almost mundane, uh, reaching into your pocket and giving something or going to offer your time and sacrificially give something of yourself to someone. He's saying, as we do that, there is some deep spiritual realities at play for our own good. This is why generosity has to factor into our discipleship and spiritual journey. Something so simple, maybe just paying for the groceries of somebody in your home group or doing that first online donation to the church or giving away your bike to someone else who you think they could probably need it a little bit more than me. Sacrificial things, for sure. But so simple and yet potentially so significant. This is what will be happening in a few weeks' time when we together do our offering as a church at the end of February, beginning of March. We're not just taking up a collection to be able to then advance the mission of the church and serve the city. We are doing that. We need resources to keep doing what we have been called to do. But what we'll be doing is together, drawing as a family to bring to God something that is fragrant, something that is pleasing to him, something sacrificial for us, but something delightful to God. And through it, we will all be drawn just a little bit deeper as a family, individually, towards him and into him to experience this true contentment that only he can give. And this passage is very much about that sense of togetherness. As this church then continues to grow in their depth of maturity to Christ and, uh, and growing in this contentment, as demonstrated by their extravagant giving, Paul then is, is rejoicing for what this means for their relationship. In verse 14, he says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And then in verse 15, he says, uh, he says no church entered into partnership with me except you only. And that word share and the word partnership, they are both the same Greek word that at root, the word koinonia, the Greek word that Paul is use, uses throughout his writing for deep, close-knit community, togetherness, friendship, family. And this has been the theme that has run right through the letter. Since it started in chapter one, he spoke of a yearning for the whole of the church in Philippi, yearns after them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You never accuse Paul of being passionless, would you? And right through to chapter 4, where he calls them his joy and his crown. Here is a friendship of genuine support and encouragement and love and affection. The kind of friendship I'd imagine that all of us long for. The relationship that we would love to see make up the interconnecting fabric of community life here at Rev. And this deep friendship that Paul and the Philippian church had flourished in the fertile soil of both parties, both him and the Philippian church, being deeply contented in Christ alone. Because they had this contentment, each of them, their relationship flourished. That when we know we lack nothing, 
when we know that we are full in Christ, we are free to be extravagantly generous to one another. We, don't have, we can be extravagantly generous with our money, with our time, without having to worry about, hang on a minute, when are they going to have me over for dinner? Or, didn't I pick up the bill last time? Or we're free from being overly dependent on other people because we're able to just receive the blessings when they come. But equally, if they don't come when we feel like we might need, we're able to say, well, in Christ, I know I'm full. I know I have sufficient. And pursuing and prioritizing this contentment that comes in Christ is not just then good for us individually, but it's good for every relationship we have good for us as the family that God has called us to be. Being family is central to our DNA, central to who, we've called to be, who we're called to be, central to our mission. It's only in this sense of family that we can truly be safe, connected, find a home. It's only in true family that we can become radical, bold, resilient disciples of Jesus. It's only in an environment of family that those that don't yet know Jesus that we are called to reach can come in and feel really drawn in. And so each of us have a responsibility to try and strengthen this family. How can we do that? By becoming people who are content in Jesus and feel increasingly free then to give, serve, bless without worrying about what might be coming back our way because we know Hey, in Christ, I have it all. And as Paul then finishes off this letter to his friends, his brothers, his beloved, his joy, his crown, he cannot help but point them just one last time towards the one in whom all is found. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a fairly standard sign-off for Paul, if you like, in his letters. But it is Paul all the way through. See, the letter to the Philippian church is is Christ-centered, but it's not particularly Christ-centered. It is Paul who is Christ-centered. Jesus Christ was the and is the supreme subject and theme of all of his writing. And his only aim, his life work, was to lead Christ's church wherever he came across it, whether it was in first century Philippi or 21st century Manchester through his writing, into all that he had found in Christ. And Alex Mottier, the commentator, at the end of his book in uh, commentating on Philippians, puts it like this. For himself and for us, Paul wanted nothing but daily and deepening experience of the richness of Christ, satisfying and unsearchable. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are so rich. Found in you are all of the riches of life, And you have come down, not just to save us, but in our salvation to offer us all of your riches. We thank you for the joy 
that we can find in Christ. We thank you for the peace we can find in Christ. We thank you for the boldness we can find in Christ. And here we thank you for the contentment, the feeling of being full that we find only in you. Help each of us to draw closer to you, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all that we're in relationship with, for the benefit of your church in Manchester, for the benefit of your kingdom coming on this earth. Amen.